0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Andrew Loney. And we talked back in October about a book that uh, was an excellent book, very fascinating book titled Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. But today we're going to talk about a book that was published here in the States in September 2021. Title of it is The Mount Batons. The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, and it already has a thousand five-star ratings, so I think this, this is a bestseller, and I think I mentioned that uh, in our last discussion. Mr. Loney's also published the Edinburgh Literary Companion in 2020, Stalin's Englishman Guy Burgess, the Cold War, and the Cambridge Spy Ring in 2016, and John Bookin, the Presbyterian Cavalier in 2002, and he has a long- Background. I mean, I've, you can go back and listen to the other interview I've done, but uh, Mr. Loney was educated at Magdalen College in Cambridge, where he's president of the Union and Dunster History Prize and he was awarded his doctorate at Edinburgh University. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has been a visiting fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge, and senior research fellow in modern British history at the University of Buckingham. Um, but Again, we're going to talk about this really fascinating, uh, fascinating book. I learned a lot about uh, these two very fascinating characters, the Mountbattens. Again, the title of the book is "The Mountbattens: The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten." So, Andrew Loney, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back.
1: Well, not at all. Delighted to be talking to you again.
0: Great. So, for people who may not know of your background, can you talk about what got you interested in the Mountbattens and what led you to write this book?
1: Yes, it sort of came directly from my biography of Guy Burgess, the 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 Cambridge spying spy. Uh, spy. Uh, he had been at the same prep school as Lord Mountbatten, Lochos Park, and I read a, a biography of Lord Mountbatten and realised that he was a fascinating character. But there hadn't been a good biography of him. There had been one official biography, which uh, I, I felt was was didn't really get to grips with his character and. What I wanted to do in the book was to present a portrait of a marriage, because here was a very unusual story. We had two very public figures, particularly in their public roles. He was the last Viceroy of India, and she came, Mrs. Visserim. But they had a very um, complex private life. They both had a series of lovers, Uh, they were both bisexual. Uh, And it was trying to to mould, in a sense, the public uh, image that they had and the private life together. Uh, and they are extraordinary. They they more or less eclipse the whole of the 20th century. And they were pretty much at all the major events. He was a grand great-grandson of Queen Victoria, her last godchild. Uh, and uh, his, for example, Tsar Nicholas II of, of Russia was his was married to his aunt. He grew up with, with the with the Russian royal family, the, the, the ones who, who perished during the uh, First World War. Um, and he then eventually ended up as the supreme allied commander in southeast asia during the war working with americans like joe stillwell he knew everyone all the presidents from roosevelt onwards Um, and then he became the last viceroy he became chief of defense staff here and first sea lord and she had a very interesting trajectory as well because she came was probably the richest heiress in the world when they married in 1922 she, as I say, took on these lovers, probably about 16 or 17 lovers in the course of their marriage. Um, but then she sort of found herself during the Second World War as this great humanitarian and did a lot of work, uh, first of all, during the war with refugees and, and the prisoners of war, and then later with Save the Children and St. John Ambulance around the world. So they are a very impressive um, uh, couple. Uh, Together with that, he was the uncle of Prince Philip. He was very much a a power behind the throne with um, the the Queen, uh, the great mentor to Prince Charles. He was uh, very close to the Queen's father, King George VI, and he was the best man to King Edward VIII. So he was really involved with the royal family and an important figure in influencing um, their decisions, really, during the 20th century.
0: Yeah, it's really remar- remarkable that he's there involved. And his family was the Battenbergs before they became the Mount Batens after World War One, because of uh, you know, not being interested in having so such Germanic names, much like Saxe,
1: Coburg, Gotha too, right? That's right. They they his father, in fact, had been first sea lord before he did. I mean, that was one of his great ambitions. But he was a German prince. Uh and um uh, because of the anti-German feeling during the First World War, the, the family were forced to change their name, uh, and so Mountbatten is just another version, I suppose, of, of Battenberg. They were going to be called Oldcastle, which they thought sounded a bit like a brewery. Uh, but he remained in touch with his German cousins, uh, and you know, that was a very important part of his life, the, 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 the family homes at Wolfsgarten and, and Darmstadt.
0: Right. So he, I mean, both very well traveled, her particularly, but it was interesting because she was much more wealthy than he was. I think at, you mentioned at the time when they got married, she was worth just an exorbitant amount of uh, money, right?
1: Yes. I mean, it was a very unequal marriage in that respect. Uh, uh, he was uh, had a very good pedigree, but he was very poor. And there were concerns that he was just a, a, a gold digger. But I think it was a genuine love match, uh, an unusual one, but they were devoted to each other, uh, even though they, in a sense, had to have these these separate private lives. Uh, And um, her wealth allowed him really to to, to, to promote his career in the Navy. It allowed him to have polo ponies and for them to live extremely well, to entertain very extravagantly. uh, And um as you say she traveled enormously and often just with with one other person camping in the desert she traveled was one of the, f- the first women to go down the, the china road in 1938 she ac- crossed the south seas on a junk she camped out in the middle east she rode across south america she was a very a woman ahead of her time a very a woman who really sort of was a free spirit and did what she wanted and and in the end, you have to sort of admire her, that she sort of lived life with her own rules.
0: Right. I mean, really fascinating. And picking up, um, you know, paramours on the way. And he was away for his career for long, extended periods of time, correct?
1: Yes, I think it's because he was away that, that she began to play away herself. Um, but I think also she she had this need for love and validation. She'd had this rather sad upbringing. Her mother died when she was very young. She had a, a, a rather unpleasant stepmother. Her father was very busy as a member of parliament. Uh, and first of all, her love was sort of focused on animals. Uh, later, say in her career, it was focused on children, though she wasn't the best mother to her own two daughters, one of whom still alive in her 90s. Um, but she... Um, yeah, she she, she she was a, a most remarkable person, um, and I didn't find a, a, anyone who had a, a critical word to say about her who I interviewed.
0: Right, and I think that he, so he was uh, involved in the Admiralty and uh, his naval career. I think when they got married, he like he was gone for eight months at one point,
1: and so there's a lot of correspondence between them both, right? Yes, they were apart a lot. And she didn't like a lot of the postings that he went to. She didn't like being the, the, the married, you know, the life of a naval wife. Uh, and so in some ways it was very lonely. I mean, there, there, there are extraordinary elements in the book, the bits of the book where he just sits on his own on Christmas Day. Um, and, you know, she just did her own thing and and was quite self-centred really, uh, uh, particularly pre-war. Just, just, you know, went off with her friends. She took lovers like the... Um, Jazz musician Leslie Hutchinson, known as Hutch. Uh, she had an affair with Paul Robeson, the actor. So she, she uh, by since going across the racial bar with her love affairs, she also was ahead of her time in many respects. Um, uh, and and- I think you mentioned, just sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned she came to
0: New York and was very much involved or wanting to... See the culture of Harlem and things like that. That uh, was pretty yes, remarkable. they
1: both loved America. In fact, they had part of their honeymoon in America. Um, they they went off to to see a baseball game with Babe Ruth. They knew Jerome Kern. They in fact made a film with with Charlie Chaplin in Hollywood. They were very friendly with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Senior, and Mary Pickford, uh, and they loved mixing with with stars, everyone from Cl- Clark Gable through to Janet Jane Mansfield. Um, but the America for them was a place of freedom where they could be themselves. They weren't members of the royal family uh, or establishment figures. She had a particular love, as you say, of Harlem and the jazz players there. She also spent a lot of time in Paris with them, uh, and they had a lot of friends in the States and spent quite a lot of time there. He, in fact, was at Pearl Harbor just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor and, in fact, advised the Americans that they should uh, for example not put their, their their aircraft out make them so exposed that they should cover their communication um, um signal oh, cables and things like that but alas, the advice wasn't picked up in time uh and hence the disaster at pearl harbor but he um they were say close to presidents from from roosevelt right through to um uh to to nixon
0: and so in those interwar years between World War I and II, he was kind of ascending the uh, hierarchy of the, the British Navy, correct?
1: Yes. I mean, he was always seen as a high flyer. Um, and he had a special expertise in signals and intelligence. So he did a lot of work there. He taught uh, signals. Uh, but he was uh, clearly going to go to, to flag rank. Um, uh, and his career was really helped during the second world war because churchill became his great mentor churchill had in fact helped in effect sack his father as first sea lord during this anti-german feeling in 19 during the first world war uh, and i think he always felt guilty about that and so he actually promoted uh Mountbatten from being a mere captain to being an admiral during the beginning of the second world war and put him in charge of combined operations and these were the sort of um Landing parties that were sent into occupied Europe, a lot of the raids, for example, the famous Dieppe raid in 1942, in which so many Canadian soldiers were killed. Um, but he, he he really was 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 catapulted to this position. I think he said he was the youngest admiral since Nelson. Uh, so Churchill really made him, and he then eventually became a member of the Chiefs of Staff, and then had this role in Southeast Asia, where he was working with MacArthur and Stillwell. Uh, and, and others um uh, to, to basically see off the japanese right and so the british
0: empire had holdings in the southeast asia so he was involved in a lot of that that part of the conflict in that uh that arena and that's kind of what led him to his next uh, assignment right which i think is a really incredibly yes assignment. i think it was
1: because of the success he made of his his job as supreme Allied commander because he knew the area that when uh, Attlee came to power in 1945 and the it was you know he guaranteed Indian independence he felt that Mountbatten uh, would be a good choice he knew the area he knew the princes but the fact that he was part of the royal family would be attractive to them he was very pragmatic he was also a man uh, off the left really uh, and therefore very close to a lot of labor uh, ministers uh, and he was sent out um in march 1947 to 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 basically speed up uh independence the the realization was the indians couldn't wouldn't be prepared to wait any longer there was already quite a lot of communal violence Uh, but his task really was to try and keep india together as a united india but unfortunately Jinnah, the muslim leader of the muslim league was determined on having his own separate homeland pakistan uh, and as a result, uh, we we had the creation of these two countries. And it was done very, very quickly because of the pressure of this co- communal violence um, and the soundings that, they had taken, that Mountbatten took there. So he was told that basically independence should come by June 1948. In fact, he pushed it forward to August 1947. And the result was that there have since then been a lot of criticism that he wasn't entirely impartial. He was too close to Nehru, too friendly with him. Uh, uh, and that worked against the interests of Pakistan, and also that um, he rushed it with the result that uh, there wasn't uh, proper provision for an orderly sort of changeover. And a lot of these communal tensions between the Muslims, the Hindus, and the Sikhs came to to, 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 to the surface, and there were probably a million people were killed in the immediate aftermath of independence in August 1947. So a bit of a stain on his character there, but it's difficult to see, given given this um, existing communal violence, given the resources he had and the desire by the British to rid themselves of India as quickly as possible, that he could have done much else.
0: And it is uh, there's an interesting part of the book where he has sit-downs with, Gandhi, like one-hour sit-downs, Gandhi, Nehru, Gina, trying to figure out how to resolve the issue. And there were other plans or other types of things that uh, they had... Uh, conceived other than just the, the, you know, separating India from Pakistan. So it was interesting to see how that came. And you can see those kind of conflicts uh, in in historiography of how it would have worked out. But like you said, and even at that time, there's just so many brutal murders and pillaging and things like that. I don't know how it could have been done peacefully, really.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, clearly with maybe a bit more preparation but, you know, the, the responsibility, I think, also lies with the Indian and Pakistan leaders who who didn't really want the British to be involved. The British didn't want to lose lives, basically saving Indian and Pakistan lives uh, because they were out of it. Uh, uh, and the Indians and Pakistan didn't want the British to be involved either. Now they're independent nations. So it's, um, you know, it is one of those things that just happened. But. As you say, he had, he he worked very hard. He had this system called the hive, where he would just get literally three or four people round a table and try and hammer out some solution. But there is there is a feeling that you know he was very close to Nehru. There's a suggestion that Edwina began her affair with Nehru even before independence, possibly in in in, in the spring and or spring of 1947, just after they arrived. And that of course hasn't played well with with Pakistan, who felt that there was favoritism towards. India not least in some of the boundary arrangements the way that for example uh, headwaters what were were given to India um, arsenals were given to India so um, it it is difficult because the man who was responsible for these boundary changes called Cyril Radcliffe only had about six weeks to do it he had to make a lot of decisions on his own he had very old maps uh, and you know, the, the, the boundaries were very difficult to distinguish to, 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 to determine because you had physical features, you had tribal uh, allegiances, you had all sorts of things that, that just made it very difficult to know where to draw the line.
0: Right, and her, her I mean, her involvement, like they were very impressed, at least in the book, with Gandhi and Nehru, and uh, she had this affair with, he became the prime minister of India, right? So she had a kind uh, yes.
1: of Yes. I mean, uh, Nehru, it was clearly, um, uh, well, in some ways, it was the most important relationship that Edwina had outside her marriage. Um, she, um, after she left India, and she was very tempted to stay in India afterwards, and there was talk of divorcing uh, Dicky. she came back um, uh, every spring and spent several months in India, and then he would come to Britain in the autumn and see her. They wrote sometimes three times a day. Uh, and there are hundreds of letters between them for the 20 years, really, um, uh, between the well, fr- from 1947 to her death in 1960, so the 13 years. Um, and I've been trying very hard over the last four years to get access not only to the private diaries and letters of Dickie Nedwina, which were bought to be seen by the public by Southampton University here in Britain but also to this Nehru Edwina correspondence, which I think is a very important historical source uh, and which was bought by public funds here to be seen, uh, but which has been closed for the last 10 years. Uh, And that campaign continues. We've just had a hearing, which has had quite a lot of publicity here in Britain and also in India. Uh, And we've managed to get 99% of Dicky and Edwina's diaries and letters released. And it's now simply a matter of getting these Literally hundreds of letters between Edwina and Nehru made publicly available. And I
0: mean, you said when she passed away, she was surrounded by these letters with from him. So they had a very intimate kind of uh, emotional tie. It's, it's, I mean, I think it's, a, it's uh, so much important historical importance because their political decisions were very personal, like on a very personal level, how they were making decisions for for India at that time, right?
1: Yes, he was given quite a lot, delegated quite a lot of authority because, of course, it was a long way away uh, and decisions had to be made quickly. So he had a lot of um, uh, independence. Uh, and that's, I suppose, where some of the criticism has come, that he, there were no checks on him. Um, but it is a great love story. As you say, she she died of this heart attack. Uh, but with um, she's clearly been reading uh, Nehru's letters as she was in bed when she had it. And it's a fantastic sort of Netflix series because it takes you from the sort of high life of Paris and the south of France and Long Island and Palm Beach through war-torn Britain and Europe and and Southeast Asia through to India uh, and then through to their life after the war when he was still very involved with the royal family and indeed with British politics. Uh, And there are lots of controversies in his career Uh, not least his involvement in a coup, and potential involvement in a coup in 1968 against the British government. So it was a very um, full life, full and varied life. Uh, And at the centre is this extraordinary love affair between two people who uh, I think clearly are in love with each other, but but have these separate um, uh, affairs with other people. Right, I mean, it had. I mean, she was involved with Bill Paley, or
0: he's he's very well known here in the states. William Paley, founder of CBS. So she uh,
1: absolutely yes, exactly. No, there were lots of American uh, lovers, uh, and Bill Paley of yes was probably as you say one of the best known. Yeah. So um, and so, but also
0: kind of this life of very sophistication, but also a lot of privilege and wealth and mansions all over the place. They're installed in these huge. You know estates all over the all over the world, really, right? Even in India.
1: Yes, I mean they they had a huge townhouse in in London, which uh, on Park Lane, which she inherited from her grandfather, who was probably the richest man in the world at the time. So think, you know, Paul Getty and and, and, and um, uh, the Walworth fortune, uh, and then they they actually pulled that down and built a block of flats and had a huge uh, penthouse which looked out over Hyde Park. They could entertain sort of several hundred people for for drinks. They had these huge terraces that went round uh, that could take, again, hundreds of people. They often entertained sort of 60 people for dinner. Uh, They then had a huge estate down in south of London, which um, uh, had been owned by Palmerston, a former prime minister, where they had uh, horses uh, and again entertained everyone from prime ministers to film stars. Uh, he was very friendly with with um grace kelly and in fact had an affair with uh, shirley mclean after edwina died um, which shirley mclean has never talked about publicly but i was able to interview one of uh, the valets who was working there in the 1960s who who talks about her as the sort of chatelaine there and how popular she was as a, as a figure as his hostess so,
0: yeah, and so can you, talk like, in the post-war, there's a lot of involvement with the uh, royal family and also intrigue. Can you kind of talk about his post-war kind of career?
1: Yes. I mean, he, he becomes, um, when the queen comes to, to the throne in 1953, I mean, she's a very young woman. And so she relies on people like Dickie for advice. I mean, by this stage, he's had, you know, these very important roles. He's come back from India Uh, he's um, heading to become basically head of the Navy. Uh, And so she does take advice from him. He has a lot of influence because Prince Philip is his nephew. uh, And in fact, he very much encouraged the marriage of Prince Philip uh, and the Queen. Uh, And uh, he'd been very close to the Queen's father, George VI. They'd been at Cambridge together. uh, And uh, he had been he had shifted his allegiance from Edward VIII after he abdicated to George VI, but she'd known him basically all her life, the Queen. So she relied on him for advice. But I think in some ways, the person uh, who he became the greatest mentor to was Prince Charles, who called him his honorary grandfather. Uh, And Charles, whose father perhaps was too busy to show much interest in him, um, relied on, on Mountbatten. Mountbatten saw a role for himself there in creating the future king, Uh, Charles, for example, had a a room uh, in the house, in the country house in Hampshire, south of London, that he could bring girlfriends to. He spent a lot of time with with Mountbatten, uh, and Mountbatten was an important influence on him. Uh, And I think one of the questions is, if Mountbatten had lived beyond 1979, he was murdered by the IRA, um, then one wonders whether Charles would have married Diana or married someone else, and the history might have been very different. So, um, you know, he 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 was a sort of um, a paternal figure to to certainly three generations the royal family and possibly even further back than that.
0: And can you kind of talk about the troubles? Americans may not be as familiar as people in the UK about the background and the IRA and what led up to his assassination.
1: Yes, I mean the the Irish Republican. Army was um, campaigning in Ireland for an ind- uh, independent Ireland. They wanted United Ireland, joining the the Northern Ireland, which was part of the UK, and Southern Ireland, which was which was um, independent. Uh, and particularly from about nineteen sixty eight and through to really into this century, um, there was uh, and indeed up to the present day there was uh, incredible violence, particularly in Belfast, but really throughout uh, Ireland um, from the IRA. Uh, Many soldiers were killed. They uh, would kidnap and murder um, prominent individuals, judges and members of the armed forces in Ireland. And in fact, the royal family were banned from going to to Ireland. But Mountbatten had a a country, a, a sort of holiday home on the west coast of Ireland, he often he went there every summer, uh, often against official advice, but he had uh, quite extensive police protection. Now, in 1979, the troubles were at a particularly bad stage. Uh, the uh, close advisor to Margaret Thatcher called Erie Neve, who was a Secretary of State for Ireland, uh, had been uh, assassinated in the House of Commons. Uh, and indeed, there had been an attempt, I think, on General Haig at the same time. Uh, and he was warned not to go to Ireland that summer But he insisted on going and taking his family, as he always did. The extraordinary thing is that instead of security being increased because of the enhanced threat, it was actually reduced. Uh, And I talked to um, one of the people who did the security audit uh, for the visit, who said that he warned uh, about the vulnerabilities, one of which was his boat, which was kept in the harbour, but often uh, uh, um, literally docked on the quayside which he said could have had a bomb placed on it uh, and then remotely activated. There had actually been a very similar attempt to this the previous year. And for some strange reason, the book bo- boat was not guarded in 1979, and that's exactly what happened. A, a bomb was placed on it. Uh, the next day, Mountbatten went out with his grandchildren uh, and his daughter, uh, and the boat was blown up. Mountbatten. Uh, uh, his son-in-law's mother, uh, his grandson, and one of the boys on the boat, a friend of the grandson, were all killed. And it was a great coup for the IRA that they managed to kill a member of the royal family. Uh, But there are lots of questions about why security wasn't better that day, suggestions that people, perhaps it suited people's purposes that he died, or that there was some cock-up, that there was some perhaps leak, that the uh, security audit that was given by this British uh, military policeman was passed back to the Guardi, who were the Irish police, who passed it on to the IRA. So there are a lot of mysteries in his life. And one of the other mysteries I found, uh, or one of the other strange things I found, was an FBI file from the Second World War um, showing that he had a predilection for young boys. He was a paedophile. Uh, And the FBI actually had had opened a file on him and on Edwina for her communist views. Um, unfortunately many of those files are now destroyed but they give some indication of the secret life that he had uh, as a a bisexual with a series of affairs with young uh, military personnel but also the fact that he was uh, abusing uh, teenage boys in fact I interviewed two boys who claimed to have been uh, abused by him in the summer of 1977 so there's a darker side to the Mountbatten story um, than than just this this life of pomp and 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 public show, uh, and I think there are probably still still parts of the story to be revealed, but clearly there's been a great attempt to cover it up. No one, of course, wants the embarrassment of of uh, the, the queen's uncle, in fact, being found to be to be an abuser of young children. And I mean, was there any other stories in that FBI file
0: that I mean, these are young teenage boys that his predilection is that correct?
1: Well, the, the FBI file um, was an interview with a woman who gave them stories about about his uh, predilections, but there are quite a lot of accounts elsewhere to corroborate it. Um, his driver in the Second World War, uh, a man called Norman Neild, wrote an article about um, uh, t- taking him to see, uh, being taken to see young children to abuse them during the war. Uh, he wrote that article in the 1980s. Um And I then interviewed other people who worked with Mountbatten, for example, his military secretary and his ADC, who again told me stories of young young children, boys being brought to him, mainly teenagers, really. Uh, And even when he was at NATO, boys being sent up into the lift to his private apartment. But this was an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. It opened them up to blackmail. Um, It was a criminal offence, homosexuality, in this country until 1967. uh, And indeed, you were thrown out of the Navy if you were homosexual until 2000. So for a man who was very ambitious, uh, it was extraordinary that his career was protected by people. And that's certainly the case. I interviewed his chauffeur from 1947, 48, in Malta, who's still alive in his 90s. And he said that he was told to find out where the male brothel was in Malta, because Mountbatten would want to be taken there. So there there are some very, very dark undertones to his life. Um, uh, uh, One of the things I found was that really there have only been authorised books on the couple, that the family have been very protective of the material. They've only released it to favoured biographers that will tell the story in the way they want it. And so it was quite a battle to, to try and tell the story independently. Uh, there are quite a lot of papers now uh, in the public domain from the family. He kept everything from his school reports at the age of five to the household accounts. Um, but there has been also quite widespread weeding of, of his papers. But you know, fortunately, there is stuff, for example, in the States uh, and elsewhere. But there's even a suggestion. Uh, I was talking to a Russian journalist that, in fact, because of these activities, he was open to blackmail. And he was recruited as a, a Russian agent with the code name Admiral. Now, there's no cooperation for that. That may be disinformation. But if so, that is an extraordinary story, given that he was the man in charge of the Navy.
0: Really is. I mean, how was this received in the UK? I mean, is this uh, accepted now or do they want not want to talk about it? I mean... How, how well, the
1: book, when it was published uh, originally in, in, in the UK in 2019, went straight into the bestseller lists. It was a top 10 bestseller. Um, it had widespread review coverage. Uh, the palace, Buckingham Palace, refused to comment on it. Uh, the family tried to downplay the the, the um, revelations. But the fact is, these revelations are all based on uh, extensive primary research on not just FBI files and testimony from people, but other papers from other collections, government files. Um, so it's very hard to, 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 to undermine the, the, you know, what I found. Um, and I think there have been lots of rumours about his sexual activities in um, sort of um, magazines, but there hadn't been really any proof. And what the FBI file and some of the testimony really did was to, 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 to get to put bones on, on the whole story. Do you find any evidence that Edwina knew of his tendencies? Um, I've not seen any uh, any evidence that she knew, but I think it's highly likely that she did. What I have found is um, uh, in the letters between them that have been made available, um, and this campaign to get the letters and diaries released led to 99% of the diaries and letters being released, but not the narrow correspondence, is she wrote to him about his writing complex Um, this riding complex he got a basic sexual thrill from women in jodhpurs and riding boots uh, particularly riding uh, and he would ride behind them and and, and look at them Uh, and he had a particular thing about his daughter his elder daughter patricia and edwina got very upset about this and actually forbade him from riding with his daughter so he had these i wouldn't say incestuous feelings towards his daughter but um, these sexual feelings were, 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 were aroused by watching his daughter on, uh, riding a horse ahead of him. So he had a lot of very strange kinks. Um, and he used to ride, for example, with a condom because he got so excited. So it's, it's, it, it does bring another sort of side to it. Um, uh, and there were a whole series of, of, of slightly unusual sexual practices that he, that he had, um that sort of the family clearly didn't want to, to, to come out.
0: Yeah, it's really
1: wild. I mean, it, it, they have like they
0: were like an open marriage type relationship. He had to know about all of her, what do you say, 15, 16, 17 different paramours or lovers, right? I mean.
1: Yes, he was uh, not. I mean, it was very interesting. He wasn't jealous of her lovers. Um, in fact, he became friendly with them. Uh, one of her lovers, a long-term lover, was a man called Bunny Phillips, who... Was on his staff in Southeast Asia. And whilst he was, they were on, Bunny was on the staff with Mountbatten, they shared the same female lover, a woman called Janie Lindsay, who was an extraordinary woman. She had been proposed to by two men um, in her life, J.F. Kennedy and David Niven, and she turned both of them down. Um, and she came quite close to marrying Mountbatten at the end of the war when Edwina threatened divorce. Uh, so there they were sharing Janie Lindsay. Um, while Bunny was the the, the lover of, of Edwina um, right. at the same time. So there was a sort of foursome there. Uh, and that again happened with uh, Lord Beaverbrook, who had a mistress called Jean Norton, who was Edwina's best friend, and who also seemed to be the lover of Mountbatten, while Beaverbrook was the lover of Edwina. So they kind of swapped partners. It was the swinging 60s in the 1940s. Right. Uh, um, but he he was fine about her lovers, she was desperately jealous of his lovers. He had a long term lover called Yola Letellier, who was supposedly the inspiration for Gigi, who was um, um, uh, much younger than him, uh, a French woman who had been married to uh, a well known uh, French proprietor and businessman called Henri Letellier. Uh, and that affair went on for about um, 60 years. But Edwina would try and sneak her away on holiday whenever Dickie was coming on shore leave from the Navy to just prevent him from going away with her. And sometimes she could be seen looking through the keyhole of their bedroom just to see what they were up to. So she was a a bit of a hypocrite, really. Uh, You know, she was allowed to behave in one way, but poor old Dickie wasn't.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. And they had an interesting relationship with themselves and their children, too. She seemed to not be as much of a you know, hands-on mother. You know,
1: no, she wasn't. Of... I mean, again, it's extraordinary. She, Like a lot of people, I suppose, she was good with other people's children, but, but not with her own. And the daughters tell these rather poignant stories of, of hearing their mother come up to the nursery early evening, hoping she's going to come in and see them. And she pauses and walks on by to her room. Whereas Dickie was always there reading to them and she had a lot of interest. I mean, what, often Edwina was away traveling. Um, he was, in a sense, the only parent. He was a single parent. Um, and there is this rather extraordinary letter that uh, Dicky wrote to Patricia, um, sorry, to, to uh, yes, to, to um, um, Pamela, sorry, the younger daughter, in which he says to her, I only really love you because you're Patricia's sister. Um, as you know, I have a particular bond with her, and it's it's a very strange letter to write to your daughter, saying that you're you know you have a preference for for one of the two sisters. Um, so it, it was very, it was a very strange sort of operation. And indeed, it carried on in the next generation. Pamela married a well-known interior designer called David Hicks, uh, who's quite well known in the states, but who was also bisexual, and there was an effect of menage a trois there. So they were used to these unorthodox, I suppose, marital arrangements, uh, and and just carried them on. Um, but it is fascinating to see the connections with the states. Um, Dickey was very friendly with a woman who was part of the Doubleday, Doubleday publishing family, in fact, uh, called Rona Doubleday, uh, who'd hoped to marry him after Edwina died. Um, he often stayed with um, Christina Ford, uh, who he's rather attracted to, uh, and uh, was very friendly with Henry Ford. So uh, they 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 had a lot of American connections and spent a lot of time in, in New York, Right. And then just
0: like them being part of the history is really incredible, too. These very ornate Byzantine personal relationships, but there they are, World War II, last and final Viceroy of India, um, the Troubles, like an advisor to Prince of Wales, the future king, just really incredible places that they were in. And a great book and a great discussion as well. Where's the best place for people to get the Mount Batons?
1: Well, the book is, was published by Pegasus in September. Um, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it should be in bookshops if they want to buy it. Uh, um, so I think it's just a matter of Googling it or asking in your local bookshop. But um, uh, I'm very hopeful um, that there will there be now three documentaries based on the book. And I'm very hopeful that it will be turned into a drama series. So um, because it is such an extraordinary story and they are such... Uh, i suppose larger than life figures um she also she also had an affair with quite a well-known composer and and musician here Um, uh, so i mean they they just mixed with the most important amazing people i mean they were very close for example to princess grace of monaco dickie was in effect wanted to have an affair with her but she kept bringing prince rainier whenever he invited to stay so he never got his wicked way unfortunately interesting
0: and uh, where's your, I mean, you have a website too, right, Andrew?
1: Yes. I mean, people can just Google me, uh, Andrew Loney, L-O-W-N-I-E. And that will bring up my, my agent, literary agency website, which has contact numbers. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, and on Twitter and on LinkedIn if people want to reach me that way. Uh, and if they Google me, they will find, uh, for example, there's a PowerPoint presentation that I do on the Mountbattens and on, indeed, the more recent book, The Traitor King, which is available online. Uh, there are a lot of articles and reviews online now. So that there's, there's, quite a lot of, um, there's quite a lot of information there for those who are interested.
0: Right. And your website is your full name, Andrew Lone, L-O-W-N-I-E dot C-O dot U-K. So you can see his literary agent and contact information and his, and his social media links are there as well. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is The Battens: The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, published here in the state September 2nd, uh, 7th, 2021.
1: Thanks so much. All right. You still there? I'm still here. That was okay. great. Thank you right, so cool. much.